the Arlington Baptist Podcast. Again, glad to have you with us and uh, hope your new year is uh, going well so far as we're well into 2023. We are going to continue our study of the book of Revelation as I've been going through verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Now, let me already uh, up front give you a little apology. I've caught a head cold the last week or two and and I've really been struggling through it, so if I have to cough or clear my throat, uh, I'll apologize ahead of time, try not to let it be too much of a distraction, but just so you understand, kind of this time of the year, a lot of our church folks are uh, going through the same thing. So anyway, hopefully I'll keep my voice well and be able to get through our study today. But we're coming now in our look at the book of Revelation to another important kind of break or division not a major division, but at least a change of direction. Uh, remember in chapter 4, when we began that chapter, we showed you that <coughs> the uh, book of Revelation really hinges on the first three chapters being basically the present or the past, as John was told these things. But then chapter 4 through the end was really the things which are to come. And we believe, and I believe in my view of prophecy, eschatology, that Chapter 4, verse 1 was a symbolic, at least, look at the rapture or the catching up of all of God's people that will begin kind of the domino effect of all the end time events transpiring. Now, as we got into that, we said that from chapter 4, really all the way through basically chapter uh, 22, uh, the end of the book of Revelation, which is kind of a prologue or addendum at the very end uh, is just kind of ties everything together. But really, even the first part of chapter 22 will be a part of the overall end time events with the uh, creating of a new heavens, a new earth and uh, eternity. So four through some of chapter 22 is really all of the future. But we told you when we began chapter four that we would divide that into events that were happening in heaven as well as events that were happening down on earth. And so we just finished last week on the podcast, uh, chapter 5. So 4 and 5, both very short chapters, but went together. They were events up in heaven. We saw the majestic throne of God, the amazing uh, appearance of these four creatures called beasts, angelic beings, probably picturing Christ in his fourfold Uh, gospel look of the appearance of Christ shown by four different gospel writers. Uh, You can go back and catch that if you didn't listen to that episode, understand what I'm getting to on that. Uh, And then we looked at the 24 elders representing the Old New Testament economies, we think. Uh, And there's just the amazing praise. And and in the midst of that, we saw this idea of this seven-sealed book uh, that only the Lamb, capital L-A-M-B, Jesus Christ, is able to open. And we told you back on the study of chapter 5 that that book, the seven seals, that only Christ is able to open. Uh, There's many people who wonder what it is. There's some discussion and debate about it. But it seems clear to me, at least by beginning chapter 6 here, that the seals, the seven sealed book, are going to be the seals that are open to form these first Uh, sets of judgments. Now, what's inside the seal uh, seems to be what he tells you the seal is, 
Uh, I think the whole book itself may really just indicate the events of the end time <coughs> that our Lord is going to bring to pass <coughs> only by his power to do so. So, as we look at that, we see uh, Christ will now uh, begin to open these seals uh, that we saw in chapter 5 that only he is able to do and has the authority to do. But before getting into the text, let me just say now we're coming back to earth in chapter 6. The events of heaven are majestic and wonderful and there's praise and there's the view of God on his throne that's just otherworldly for sure. But now we're back on earth. And again, what we're saying by being back on earth is that we're now in a terrible, horrifying period known as the tribulation period. I stated this in the introduction of the book, that if you look at a premillennial, pre-tribulational view of eschatology or end-time events, which Revelation fits into, then that makes you uh, realize that after the rapture will begin a period of time known as the tribulation period, which we believe is seven years long. And I got into some reasons for that. We're going to see even more as we talk about the dividing of that seven years into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. John is going to be inspired to write three different ways to divide the seven years into time, uh, two time periods of three-and-a-half years. He'll talk about 42 months, 1,260 days, and time and times and a half a time, which would refer to years. Um, now, when we get to it, I'll get into some more detail about that. But simply to say that from chapter 6 on, We're going to spend most of our time on earth, and it becomes the most shocking, uh, the most troubling parts of the book of Revelation. You know, there's many people, uh, I believe the unsaved, of course, would, would be first in this, but could be even Christians who don't understand the book well, who are fearful and, and, uh, uh, just basically shy away from, uh, the book of Revelation. They say they don't, they don't want to hear it. And, and they can't understand it, and it's all this terrible stuff, so I don't want to even think about it. Well, this is the part of the book of Revelation they're really referring to, because we are going to see some uh, catastrophic uh, events that take place, unlike any other. And I I was thinking that it would be good for me to read back in Matthew 24 uh, a statement that our Lord made about the tribulation period that is so sobering and so unbelievable when he said it, that if we didn't have the book of Revelation to back it up and to and to kind of fulfill what he said, we might think he was using hyperbole or exaggeration, but he was not. And here's what he said. He said in um, Revelation, or I'm sorry, Matthew, Matthew's gospel, this is our Lord's words, but he's telling us about that period that we're going to be seeing the details of in Revelation chapter 6 and onward, really. He says in Matthew 24, 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now let me stop. I'm going to read one more verse, but let me stop and say that in in itself is just mind-boggling. Imagine what had happened prior to when Jesus said these words. You had things like, of course, the great flood in Noah's day that killed all uh, air-breathing uh, creatures and mankind other than Noah and those on the ark. Uh, imagine that. We can think of, of the world wars, the, the bubonic plague. We can think of so many other 
terrible things on earth that have happened. And yet he said, this is his words, I'm just telling you what he said, that during this tribulation, it will be worse, he says, for then shall be great tribulation. Well, the word simply means great testing, trying, hardship, uh, terror, all these words mixed into one. Uh, He says, it's going to be so great that it's not going to, you can't compare it to anything that's happened before this time. Nor will happen after he said these words until the tribulation itself happened. And then he says, <coughs> excuse me, and except those days should be shortened, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> and there's some speculation of what he means by that. I won't even get into that. Uh, I would just say, except those days had an end. Let's just put it that way. Whether we speak of the end being the seven-year end or the days themselves are shortened, we'll see that later in Revelation. I'm just going to get to the point to say, he's saying, unless those days had an end to them, unless the tribulation had a set period of time, there should no flesh be saved. No one would be left on earth. But for the elect's sake, that's the chosen. That's another euphemism. It's another uh, synonym for Christians, for believers. Okay? But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened or have a completion or an end. So I'm saying that uh, and read that passage in Words of Christ to let you know that this is going to be some tough, tough uh, uh, sailing ahead. There's going to be some very difficult things we read about it. And I have to tell you that not just myself do I seem uh, and feel inadequate to describe it, but no commentators that you'll ever read. And I've read a a bunch of commentators and commentaries on the book of Revelation, and they all uh, pretty much say the same thing. We can't be 100% sure on the interpretation of everything in Revelation, like we can't be 100% sure of every single verse, word, phrase, statement, in, in Scripture. But Revelation is particularly difficult because of the symbolic nature, of course, but also because it's John, again, writing of things that were way off in the future from his own day, and he's having to write in language from his own day uh, to describe them. So, of course, it would be difficult. It's like how I've often said, how, how is John or any writer going to describe heaven using earthly language? It's not really possible, 100%, for sure. So we're going to do the best we can to compare Scripture with Scripture, which is how you rightly interpret the Bible, by the way. The Bible is its own commentary. Uh, The Bible is best to describe the Bible, okay? Uh, Yes, man has been given, women, all of us Christians have been given insight, and there's many great writers and speakers and people who have commented on the Bible that we can learn from, and I read a lot of these, and and I'm a preacher, so I make, uh, you know, uh, no apologies to the fact that I believe in God using teachers and pastors like myself uh, to help other people understand the Bible. But no pastor, including myself, would ever say that we have a corner on the truth and that we know everything and that uh, only uh, we can tell you what the Bible says. No man should say that. Uh, the Bible says uh, in First Peter, or Second Peter, pardon me, that no prophecy of the scriptures any private interpretation, which was an amazing statement Peter made. What he was saying is, and when he said prophecy, I don't think he was just talking about like revelation or end times prophecy. He was talking about any revelation from God, which is the Bible. 
but nobody can have their own interpretation of it uh, because no one uh, has that authority. Only the Holy Spirit, uh, who is God's uh, Spirit, the Spirit of the living God who inspired the writers, uh, only the Holy Spirit can teach us ultimately what the Bible says. And yet we're still, still finite people and we have limitations to our understanding, of course. Paul said, we see through a glass darkly right now in 1 Corinthians. Uh, what he meant by that, you ever see through a, try to look through a jar? Uh, yeah, you can see light and objects to the other side, but they're distorted. You can't make out clearly what they are. And he's describing how that that's how our knowledge of the Bible is right now. And the, in these uh, finite fallen bodies that we still live in till we're delivered and get to heaven, we'll be given all knowledge there and more perfect knowledge there. Anyway, I went on, I know, longer than I probably should have, but let me jump into the text now. So we're starting in chapter 6, and now we're back on earth during the tribulation period, and we begin to see these uh, seven seals that were spoken of in chapter 5. So let's read the text. Chapter 6, verse 1. And I, and that's John, saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, first thing I want to say is about the lamb opening the seals. There's actually going to be three sets of seven judgments that are described in this section of Revelation from basically from chapter 6 through chapter 16. There's going to be the seven seals. Now, your version of the Bible, if you're not using the authorized King James Version, you may have a different word for that. That's okay. I'm just telling you what they're called in the King James Version. Seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven vials, or some versions I, I know call them bowls. But here's the thing. Uh, 21 of them total, but what's unique is the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet are not really judgments. They tend to open up to seven more judgments. So in a sense, we have really 19 judgments because now the the seventh vile or bold judgment will be a, a judgment. So in a sense, we have 21 numbered, but only 19 actual judgments that, that will be unleashed. Now, they begin by the lamb opening the seals. And what's important about that is the next two sets of judgments, the trumpets and the vials, will not be opened by Christ, but they'll be opened by angels that are given that uh, job by Christ uh, to do that. This tends to be important, as I see it, that Christ is the one that begins this whole thing. I told you, those seven seals in this book, and this book itself being open, to me, I think if it could mean a lot of other things too, maybe, but it definitely means this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the unleashing of God's wrath. Now, I need to say something about that, and that is that God's wrath is one of his attributes. God has many attributes. The Bible says God is love. God is eternal. God is all-knowing. God is transient, a tran uh, a transcendent, I should say. He's transcendent, I mean, he's outside of his creation that he made. He's, he, he's uh, immutable, which means he does not change. And one of his attributes is his wrath. Now, of course, in our day where so much watered-down, shallow preaching and teaching is happening, you very seldom hear about the wrath of God and the holiness of God and the judgments of God, but you're going to hear it a lot in the book of Revelation. You can't escape it. And 
what we're seeing in the tribulation period in which these judgments are going to be unleashed is God has finally uh, come to the end of his patience. The Bible says God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, and God is uh, full of grace and mercy and long-suffering and all these words that are so beautiful about him. But God does have a, a limit to that mercy and grace. And this is the limit being shown. Man has been given 6,000 years now, and until however long it takes to the tribulation period comes, he'll be given all that time. And, and many people today live into their hundreds. We have people living in, into their hundreds today, more and more. I read an article recently in a paper that I get that uh, there's more cent, uh, centarians, they call them, people living past 100 than ever before, at least in recorded history. If we go back to the days of Noah and the, uh, the anti-Diluvian or the pre-Diluvian world of Noah before the flood, there's people living 900 plus years. But I'm saying in modern times when records have been kept, but what are we saying? As people are living that long and much longer than they have for a very long time, does it mean that more people are coming to Christ? Sadly, it means the opposite. Uh, God is being kicked out of the public sphere of our uh, society, of, our, of the media, uh, the educational system. And I'm not talking about just America. You can talk about Europe. You can talk about other Western nations. Uh, what I'm saying is God's mercy and grace on people does have a limit. And sometimes people, uh, they go past that limit. They trespass that limit going too far. And God in the book of Revelation is showing that man has went too far with his sins and his flagrant rejection of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. God wants all people to be saved. He sent his spirit to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he moves people to draw them to Christ. But man can reject that. And man does reject that. Man, like in Romans 1, turns away from the creator, makes up his own gods and, and goes off into all of his own darkness and, and filth and sin and, and ungodliness. And so the book of Revelation is going to describe those judgments that now are coming from a holy God upon a Christ-rejecting world. Well, back to the text. So the Lamb opens the seal, and John begins. There's a lot of hearing and seeing. Remember, this whole book of Revelation is John being given this revelation by Christ to write down. And so he's writing down what he hears and sees. So he said, I saw the Lamb, and I heard, as were the noise of thunder. Man, Thunder is, is wrath. You see it on the, the, uh, uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. God brought fear upon Israel when he gave these holy commandments. And he's, he starts these seven seals with thunder that people will take note. Thunder's a scary thing. Even as adults, boy, I've, I've slept through many a thunderstorm here in Texas. We don't get rain a lot, but when we do, we get some pretty bad storms and some pretty loud thunder and and, and, and lightning lighting up the sky and so on. And thunder is a scary thing. And he says, I, I heard as it were the noise of thunder. That doesn't mean it was thunder. Remember the word as or like. It says as it were. It, it means I heard this loud booming sound, uh, which means take note. Uh, this, this is wrath. These things like thunder uh, and these loud noises are picturing wrath about to come. He says, one of the four beasts, remember those four beasts we were introduced to uh, in chapter four? Now, they lead him to come and see. Look at that phrase, come and see. 
Jesus said that when he first met the first disciples. Uh, we think we're probably Andrew and and uh, John and James, maybe. They later go get Peter. Um, and, and they were told by John the Baptist, the one that they first went to and heard the message of Christ. They were told to go, go follow him. And when they came to Christ, he said, they said, where dwellest thou, master? And he said, come and see. And so now John is told to come see something a whole lot different. He came and saw the beauty of the sacrificial lamb Christ when he was first told to come and see. But now he's going to come and see something a whole lot different. He says, and I saw, and behold, and the word behold is always getting our attention. Listen, I want to tell you what I saw. I want you to read what I saw. He said, behold, a white horse. I saw a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, these first four seals are uh, popular in history to be known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's going to be four horses. And each of these horses is a different color. And each of them will teach us a different lesson. We may not get uh, to all four of today. I'm sure we won't. But we start out with this first horse. And what's interesting is these colors uh, all have symbolic meaning. And they teach us lessons. They'll start with this white horse. There'll be then a, a red horse. Um, we'll see a black horse. And then we'll see a, a pale horse. Or uh, maybe a gristled, uh, multicolored horse. Pale but anyway, a white, a white, a white horse. Now, because it's a white horse, white is often in the Bible symbolic of purity, of righteousness. And we might be led to think, well, man, this is a good thing. Uh, could it be Christ? Well, no, it's not Christ. Uh, in fact, I will already let the cat out of the bag to tell you, I think it's the Antichrist. Uh, and here's why we think that. This white horse is not... Uh, given here for purity, but it's given here because of a tradition that comes from ancient times. And that is, in ancient times, many kings and generals and military leaders, after a great victory, would ride back into their capital city on a white horse, or sometimes even a white mule or donkey. Uh, but a white horse primarily, uh, we know some examples of it in history. You can look it up to see this is true. But anyway... It pictured victory. And in this verse, it said of this man on the white horse that he had a crown. That means he was a leader. He was a king. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. So the fact that he's on a white horse uh, indicates that he's been successful to some degree, we'll see, of his whole task of conquering. He has conquered. Now we'll see what he's conquered and how he's conquered as we go through much of the book of Revelation. But uh, it's a he, it says, and he that sat on him, on this white horse, had a bow. Now, this is, this is symbolic. It doesn't mean that the Antichrist will literally ride on a horse into Rome or whatever city. Uh, might be his headquarters. I think it'll be Rome, but we'll get to that later. Um, but it's symbolic. But it's symbolic for a reason. Because it is teaching a lesson. Now, here's the lesson. And it comes from a little statement here uh, that really gives it away, I think. It says, and he, he that sat on him had a bow. Now, we know what a bow is. A bow is half of what we call a bow and arrow. When you have a bow, you have arrows. You shoot from a bow. Archery, you know, this weapon that's been used for so, so long. For so long, man has uh, developed these kind of uh, weapons for warfare and for hunting and various things. But 
Isn't it telling? I, I think there's a lesson to be learned. It says he had a bow, but there's no arrows. He has no arrows with this bow. And that in itself is the great lesson to learn about this first seal. Because I think it's teaching us something that we see much more in other passages, such as in the book of Daniel. Now, I've told you before, I'm going to keep from doing too much cross-referencing for sake of time because I'll get bogged down and it would take forever to get through this book and the podcast is trying to flow so we can get to some other subjects. So I don't want to take too long, but I'll, re- I'll refer to things and hopefully stir your thinking, maybe spark your interest to go back and do some further study. I've already mentioned earlier in the introduction of the book how important the book of Daniel is to understand Revelation. They, they're like almost a hand in a glove. They go together. And if you go to Daniel, especially chapter 11, but I think you'll find it perhaps if I'm, my memory serves me right, earlier in chapter 10, uh, you'll see some references to the Antichrist taking over control of the world by peace. Now, this brings us to the seven-year tribulation. I'm already going to begin to divide it up and, and, and tell you generally what we're going to see as we go through these judgments. It appears that the first three and a half years of the seven years of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to come to power, but he's not going to take over the world by force, by tyranny, by uh, military conquering, by you know subjugation of people, uh, by brute uh, you know, terror. No, he's going to instead use a, a deceptive tactic that really fits the devil because he's the incarnation of the devil. The Antichrist is really the devil incarnate. He's going to deceive people by making people think he's the greatest thing that's ever come along. He will unite the world behind him. Now, this brings up so many things. I, I want to be limited in my statements here because I'll get too far into this, but let me just give you a scenario. Imagine the rapture happens, okay? Uh, Millions and millions, I'm not going to try to put a number on it, but millions and millions of Christians, as well as I think people who have not uh, reached the age of accountability or mentally capable of being saved, understanding the gospel, they're all going to be caught up. Can you imagine how the world is going to react? It's going to be total panic. It's going to be, it'll make COVID and 9-11 and everything look like simply a little picnic out at the park. It's going to be world changing. And people are going to be panicking and wanting answers. And someone's going to come to the forefront to have to try to settle down the world. And I think it's the Antichrist. I think he is going to have, I don't know what his answers are going to be. I don't know what his explanation will be. But he will in some way begin to take control of the world by settling things down and by diplomacy. You'll see that in in, uh, Daniel 11. It says by diplomacy, he'll use negotiations. I think he's going to negotiate a peace back between Israel and the Palestinians of the Arab world. There's always been this uh, Arab-Israeli problem we know to this very day. Um, All these things are going to be included in this. And this is part of what this text is saying. He's going to conquer the world Uh, by peace, by diplomacy, by negotiation, not by brutality. Now, that's just the first three and a half years. Because at the middle of the three and a half years, a drastic change will happen. I'll hold you in suspense as we get later into that more. Whereas the last three and a half years of the tribulation are going to be horrifying. 
Now, I can get that far into the story because when we get to the second seal, and we may do so in a minute here, uh, you'll already see that we cross into the horror and terror of judgment and bloodshed and death that will mark the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. So I think this first seal is opening up the beginning of the end and it is picturing the first three and a half years. And he says he, he wears a crown. Well, that means he's already been given authority. A king wears a crown. Well, he has to be made a king by some sense of that word. We don't think it's going to be a necessarily a, a diplomatic type or, or I should say democratic type vote of the people. But in some way, he's going to take over the world. And he'll have many advisors under him. And we'll talk about that later where he has different... Uh, uh, workers along with him, especially his right-hand man, the the uh, false prophet, who we'll be introduced to later. I know I'm getting ahead of myself. But back to verse 2 to end this and, and move on. So he takes over the world, bow in his hand, no arrows, doesn't need him because he's going to take over the world by peace and diplomacy, and he will conquer that way. Now, let's jump to verses 3 and 4. We'll at least cover these two. It says, and when he had opened the second seal, now we're just going to go in random, uh, or I should say random, but consecutive order, uh, seal after seal after seal. Here the second seal is open. And it's he, though he in verse 3 is Christ again, the Lamb, only has authority and power to do it. He's the only one that could set these things in motion. The second seal is open. And I heard the second beast. Remember, there are four beasts. Each of them is going to uh, be a part of these four first seals. Okay. These four first seals are opened by the four different beasts. And they had a special place in these. So that's important. It says, and when he uh, the, heard the second beast say, come and see, he's going to say the same thing. It'll happen. All four of these first four seals will be a beast saying, come and see. And each one will be opened up to a horse. <coughs> now, verse four. And there went out on, uh, on another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to, to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. There was given unto him a great sword. Now notice this, a great sword uh, is given here, and peace is taken from the earth. Excuse me. So we see here that when this second horse uh, comes on the scene, notice its color. We go from white, peace, White is uh, also a color of peace and tranquility, the white dove, you know. But now red, and red in the Bible is a picture of blood. And so this picture is bloodshed, wrath. Remember how Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and began the plagues by first turning the water into blood. It was a picture of God's anger, his wrath, blood uh, out of the waters. And so this red blood shows you that things are going to change. So this is in some way taking place in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. I don't want to be dogmatic of exactly uh, every time period of these events. I have to tell you that time is one of the most difficult aspects of Revelation. Not generally. I think the tribulation period of seven years is very easy to see. You'll see it broken up specifically. But where these things fit into those seven years becomes very difficult. So I'm not going to say when or does it does the uh, does the period of peace end in one day or one hour as soon as the Antichrist goes into the temple and I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll talk about that later. But uh, apparently we know it is taken from the earth because he says 
and power is given to him. Now listen to that phrase. How was power given to him? It was given to him by God, by the Lamb, by the Father, by the Spirit. See, the devil has never been able to do any more than God allows him to do. And even though the Antichrist will have worldwide domination and his uh, sidekick, the false prophet, with him, only will they be given power because God allows it. God is fulfilling a plan in a, in a pre-written script from his word that he's going to make these things happen. But he's not going to pull strings like a puppeteer. He's going to let people use their will and their evil desires and all that they want to do and, and, and so forth. But all these things will come to pass because in his foreknowledge, he knew it was going to happen beforehand. He could write of it that way. So power was given to him that sat there on to take peace from the earth. Well, he's going to take peace from the earth. He's going to turn on everyone. He's going to show his true colors. He's not this great peace uh, man. He is instead a killer. He's a vicious killer. Remember what Jesus said of the devil in John chapter 8? He was a murderer from the beginning. And of course, his incarnation, the Antichrist, is going to be that very thing. He is a bloodthirsty, brutal killer. He is, he is Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and all the other brutal killers of history all wrapped into one. He's the worst of all. And it says that they should kill one another. Now, this is interesting. Such chaos will be created on the world. And we'll see so much of it in the book of Revelation. I won't need to go into detail now to explain it because we're going to see it shown in these uh, passages coming ahead. Uh, that people are going to be in such chaos, they'll kill one another. Non-Christians will kill the Christians. Uh, the Antichrist will, will kill the, the believers. He'll go after the Jewish people, especially the remnant that we believe will be saved. Uh, we know that God's wrath will come upon the wicked. So there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. But in this particular sense, he says, and they should kill one another. Uh, often in the Old Testament, you'll see where God created such chaos in the enemies of Israel that the Israelites didn't have to fire a shot, didn't have to kill them at all themselves. They got, went into chaos and confusion and ended up turning on each other and killing each other. And it says, and there was given on him a great sword. Wow. I tell you, a sword was only used for one thing. In biblical times, it was used for death. Uh, it was used to kill. It was used for capital punishment. It was used in warfare. And so God's going to give the Antichrist this sword that he will uh, use to make the whole world a scene of horror, a scene of terrible bloodshed, a bloodbath, if you will. And that's where we'll close for today in this second seal. Lord willing, we'll pick up uh, next time in our episode with the third seal. I want to thank you again for listening and again remind you our great motto, conviction for truth, compassion for people. God bless you.